Brian from the Burp Pipe, and you're listening to Reliving My Youth. And welcome to Reliving My Youth, the show where we look back at pop culture from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. My name is Noel Fogelman. We continue our 90s alternative music series with Brian Van Ark, lead singer of The Verpipe, who had the smash hit The Freshman. Brian talks about its long journey, which was featured on its Villains album. He tells me why its follow-up album failed. Before forming The Verpipe, Brian was in the Army for four years. He talks about how that influenced him musically, and post-Army, Brian handed a demo tape to a country music legend. He tells us which one. We also talk about the band opening for Kiss, why one of its albums had an unfortunate release date, and the whole verb, verb pipe thing. All of this and more with Brian right now. And helping me relive my youth today is Brian Vanderark. Brian, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, so um, let's start uh, I guess kind of in the beginning, I saw that you were in the army for four years. And first of all, thank you for your service. Um, how did that all come about? What made you uh, decide to enlist? Uh, there wasn't a tremendous amount of um, um, opportunity when I was uh, starting out playing uh, music at the Holiday Inns. <laughs> uh, when I was 16 years old and I felt like I was uh, in a rut and I needed some worldly experience. And uh, a lot of my friends were going to backpack across Europe, and I thought, well, if I'm going to backpack across Europe, I'm going to get paid to do it. <laughs> so I thought I'll join the army. <laughs> it was a pretty stupid way to go about it, but you know, I felt like uh, there could be, I guess, worse things to do for the next three or four years to get my life squared away and to get some worldly experience and, and uh, you know, some stories under my belt for songwriting and. Uh, and so I did it. Ironically enough, I, I was consistently getting my guitar taken away from me and uh, <laughs> a disciplinary actions. But uh, other than that, yeah, I'm proud of the fact that I served at all, you know. Yeah, where, uh, whereabouts were you? <clears throat> I was in Nuremberg, Germany for three years. Um, and that, um, that, was, uh, that was back when the wall was up. Right. Up. Um, so that was in 1980. 84, 84, 85, uh, in 86. And we worked on the border of Czechoslovakia in East Germany, um, not not like a border crossing, but out in the middle of a field where the border is, where nobody's really around, and you just watch for any activity, any kind of buildup of artillery, that's something you would call in, or anybody that would try to escape to our side, uh, you'd, uh, you'd give them blankets and a cigarette and turn them over to the German Polish side, you know? Did, uh, did you have any of those experiences? Uh, I did not. I had buddies who did, but I didn't, uh, I didn't have that uh, particular experience. Um, so I never saw that. We heard landmines going off at night, which always concerned us. But, you know, they could be deer. Deer would roam back and forth between you know, communist, you know, countries and, <laughs> and free nations yeah. uh, constantly as some sort of tease, I think. But uh, so you never knew if the landmines were deers that went off or if it was somebody who was trying to get across. But... Um, during that time, it, I don't think it was happening that uh, that often. Um, so, um, and artillery. 
artillery buildup. There was nothing. I was in I was in the service in a very peaceful time to to be in the service. I think Grenada just happened. Oh yeah. <laughs> so you know Reagan was in charge, and you know although Europe uh, wasn't, uh, they weren't huge fans of Reagan, and uh, <laughs> Germany wasn't a huge fan of us being over there. Uh, there were plenty of protests that I had to walk through and that kind of thing, but. Uh, for the most part, it was very easy to be in the military when I was in compared to how it is now, for sure. Yeah, I, I bet. I bet. And you mentioned like the year of setting off landmines. Uh, my grandfather was in World War II, and when I was younger, I asked him if he ever fired his gun or you know shot anybody. He's like, no, I never shot anybody, but he did kill a pig one night. <laughs> I guess. It's yeah. To kill. Yeah, exactly. So hopefully, you know, he enjoyed some bacon or ham that night. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Yeah. So then after you, um, after you, you left the army, did uh, you have any songs that you wrote from the experience? Uh, I did. I had some song ideas. I had a song called This Promised Land. I used to work, you know, when I worked on the border, um, you know, mostly it was farmland, German farmland that we worked on. In fact, the farmers would bring up they would send up their, you know, we worked all night shift, they would send their daughters up with beer and uh, bread and cheese in hopes that their daughters would marry an American <laughs> somewhere. So I had firsthand, uh, you know, um, connections with the uh, with the farmers, or secondhand connections through their daughters, I guess. Um, but I wrote a song about the American farmers, and then that's, um, that's when I met, uh, as soon as, I mean, when I came out of the Army, I had that song called This Promised Land, I met Willie Nelson, and gave him my demo and he asked me to uh, play that song at Farm 8 4 that was uh, that was kind of a big break for me wow yeah this is all before the verse pipe of course this was uh, me as a solo artist but. right but yeah that's uh, that's pretty amazing that you were able to uh, luck out with, with Willie just to have him take your demo <laughs> well he uh, my buddy was a DJ at a country station he was going to go interview him and my buddy knew I had that song and said you should come along with me and just give him a demo and I did and Willie was super gracious, and uh, you know he uh, he said he would listen to the demo, and and I left the bus with this great confidence in a you know as a songwriter and uh, this elite. Well, I might, all of these feelings might have had something to do with the with the uh, quality of air on Willie's bus. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> uh, but uh, you know uh, he's one of those guys that was a real deal. You know, I mean, uh, you always hear about that that kind of thing happens in the country music world where. People actually listen to demo tapes, you know, not so much in the rock and roll world anymore, but, you know, Chris Christopherson got his demo tape heard when he landed a helicopter on, I forget, Johnny Cash's lawn or something. I forget what the story is, and I just heard another story about Alan Jackson, you know, delivered, his wife delivered a demo tape or something, and, you know, so that kind of thing happened then, so it worked out for me. Yeah, true. Now everyone just puts their demos up on YouTube. <laughs> Yeah, you know, sadly, that's what's going on, and, you know, there's so many, um, you know, I mean, there's upsides and downsides to that. I mean, there's so many artists now that um, can, you know, anybody essentially can get online and put up a song, uh, and it's hard to get through all of that, you know, when you're, especially when you're a music lover and, um, you know, and uh, you want to see young bands make it making it now is a whole different thing you know they feel like they have to go through major labels which is which is not true they feel like they have to go through you know the um you know the 
the reality shows of the right. voice and that kind of thing, and that's not true either. I firmly believe that young musicians should treat it as a business, and and uh, and when you do that and you monetize uh, monetize it somehow, um, eventually you can make a living at it, which is what we're doing now, you know. Right. So then, how did um, the Verb Pipe actually start? I know you were in a couple bands before that. Well, we had two bands that were doing really well in Michigan. Um, one was my band called Johnny with an Eye, and there was another band called Water for the Pool. And those guys got all the weekend gigs, and uh, and we didn't. But we soon gained a following because we would play a lot of free shows on the twenty-five cent draft beer nights, you know. Hmm when everybody was at the bar, so we got a following pretty quick, and I approached a couple of the guys from the other band, I said, let's break up our bands, I got these 12 songs, we should go and record, uh, start a new band, a super group, whatever, and, and go in and uh, make a real go of it in the industry, and, and they agreed, and then we, we borrowed $5,000 and went into a small studio in Grand Rapids and recorded an album, and we sold about 15,000 copies of that on our own, just playing around the state, and then uh, took some of that money and made another album again uh, on our own, and we sold about 25,000 copies. So the band had only been together a little over a year, and we were already making upwards of $300,000 to $400,000 in merchandise sales, and that got the attention of RCA Records, who finally signed us to a, to a deal. And then we were with them for you know, quite some time. Right, and then was that, was that when you opened up for Kiss on tour? album was recorded was to go out and promote it and we went to all the small uh, clubs that we'd never been to before and then we got a call from Gene Simmons that really loved the advanced copy of our record he had heard and asked if we wanted to go out and tour with him and of course we said yeah I was a huge Kiss fan you know so we did that for 30 days and it was miserable which <laughs> <laughs> is the worst experience of my life <laughs> why so bad I, I think I'd rather be in the army for four years than go on tour with Kiss again <laughs> Yeah, Ironically, the Kiss Army. The Kiss Army, exactly. <laughs> well, well, I remember the Kiss Army when I was a kid. You know, I mean, I loved, I loved Kiss. But anybody that can't wait to go see Kiss, you know, they're going to put the makeup back on to get the original members together, and then twenty thousand people cram inside of an arena waiting to see Kiss after ten years of having the makeup off, and then you know, lights come up, and it's some stupid band you've never heard of. We were that band, so they they were brutal to us. And and after the first couple of nights. Gene just came back and said, yeah, yeah, well, well, here you go. Here's your baptism. I mean, every band that plays opens for us gets booed. <laughs> so, <laughs> all right, well, great. Thanks thanks for the info. We've only got 29 more dates with you. Uh, so we did 30 dates of, you know, getting essentially booed and uh, spit on and uh, stuff pelted at us, which I guess I learned uh, very quickly that I would never fear another audience for the rest of my life, you know. Right, yeah, and that pretty much, I would imagine, pumped up Kiss even more, especially the fan base. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I, that I don't know, but I know that, um, I know that, you know, we, it didn't do anything for us to open up for them. I mean, we, we, you know, we would sell 30, you know, we'd sell 30 or 40 records tonight, which is nothing to sneeze at, but when you're talking about 20,000 people, it's really right. worth it. And then we had a video that took off on MTV for a song called Photograph, and that, brought Photograph, the song, into the top five, and so did we really need to do the Kiss thing? No, I don't think so.
Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Especially if you like Kiss when you're growing up, I guess just to, you know, meet with them, toward them for the first couple of minutes was okay. <laughs> yeah, he would come back and, you know, he'd sit down and talk to us and hang out with us and he'd do it in full makeup and then he'd do it without his makeup on. He was, he was, a, he was a nice enough guy, you know. Right. It's certainly all about the money, of course. Of course, yeah. yeah. So then that album you were talking about, Villains, uh, was a massive hit uh, photograph great song and of course uh, the freshman I know you kind of it was a long process having that song you had that for a couple of years and it finally released um, was that an easy song to write
fact that we were young and we knew everything and we were freshmen and uh, it all fell into place after a year and then yeah we recorded the song in 92 and put it on our first debut album and then when we signed with RCA they requested we take it off and redo it so it was more alternative rock and and we did that and then it was um too sleepy sounding it was about six minutes long and so we re-recorded it again and then it was a hit song in 97 so anybody that writes a song you got to be patient it took seven years for that thing to ever get on the radio oh wow now you guys obviously had the freshman ben folds five had brick third eye blind had jumper what was it about that era and the depressing slash suicidal types of songs um you want to hear those types of songs made now and played on the radio you know, honestly, I think that just a matter of uh, that particular time was the time that young people found their voice um, to, you know, rebel against their parents and found their voice in lyric and music, you know. Um, and although rebellious music had been going on forever, um, you know, medication uh, became part of the, you know, the American vernacular um, to medicate kids. And... Um, and I think that that was helpful and hurtful. Uh, helpful in the fact that, um, you know, some of the kids needed it. Those who didn't, I think, uh, found a voice in music, and um, and those who did found a voice in music and lyrics. So um, I think that had a lot to do with it. Right. It was just the right time. I mean, everything was, at the timing of everything in the 90s was perfect for it. Look at Kurt Cobain. I mean, he was the leader of the whole alternative charge and had it not been for him then uh you know i'd still be working at that mall job right <laughs> yeah all of us really <laughs> uh, uh so do you think the freshman kind of became like an anthem for like pro-choice oh jesus uh i, I mean you have to ask a pro, uh, pro-choicers <laughs> right <laughs> if anything it was more of a i mean if anything it was uh it was more of an anthem for pro-life unintentionally right you know i mean it really was the worst case scenario of of having an abortion and then someone feeling so depressed about it that they commit suicide i'm i'm 100 percent pro-choice all the way my my wife feels the same way and uh and i was back then but um i don't know what led me to that particular lyric or that feeling at the time but um but for whatever reason, it worked, you know. It touched a nerve somewhere. Um, I don't necessarily think the kids even now today listen to the song, and I think what they hear is that they're freshmen, and they hear, I don't think they go into deeper into the meaning of lyrics anymore, and I think uh, that's why the song still resonates with um, with kids who are freshmen coming into each year, and that's why I'm able to pay my mortgage, frankly. Right. <laughs> the, fact that, the fact that it's a song that... Um, it's like writing a Christmas song, you know, you're always going to need a Christmas song, you know, it's always going to be Christmas, while somebody's always going to be a freshman, so I'm fortunate in that respect that it happened that way, that's for sure. Right, so then the, the follow-up to Villains uh, was released, and it didn't really do quite as well as Villains. What happened there? Um, yeah, Rap Rock happened. Hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, that was that was the time of Lip Biscuit and... Um, and it was either things were either really heavy or really pop again um and there was really didn't seem like there was any in between you know 
Um, and uh, we fell by the wayside. You know, that particular album, we wanted it to be more of a rock record, but it wasn't rock enough for for the kid rock fans and, uh, you know, and K-Rocks and that kind of thing. So, um, you know, and the songs weren't, I don't think the songs were really there either. Um, so, you know, you spend nearly a million dollars on an album and the promotion of an album and, and you release it and, you know, you go from selling a million and a half records from the previous album to selling, you know, 20,000 records, then it's a huge failure, you know. Uh, we handed, I mean, RCA dropped the ball, We, but we handed them a, you know, 500-pound bowling ball covered in grease, you know. <laughs> I mean, there was, no, there was nothing they could do with this album. And I listen to the album now, and I go, oh, there's, there's a lot of really great songs on here, but it wasn't right for radio for the time. And, um, you know, it's... Uh, it's one of those things you go, okay, well, that was that was the sophomore slump that everybody talks about. Right, and then kind of interesting to have a sophomore slump when you have a song called The Freshman, I guess, but... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so then um, you guys take a couple of years to make your next album, which was really good. Really enjoyed it underneath. It had a couple of good songs, Colorful and Never Let, you know, Let You Down. Uh, but then the release date was kind of ironic for that album, wasn't it? Yeah, well, it was released in 9-11. I mean, that was an omen. That was a bad omen for us. That was the, that was that was it. As far as the band was concerned, we looked at that and said, okay, well, we had a song that was climbing up the charts and never let you down. It was the number 20. We were ready to make a video for that, which would have propelled it up into the top 10. And... I'm trying to keep my feet on the ground. I'm getting to like this feeling I've found. I'm getting to love the thought of having you around And I will never let you down Your friends were all well-meaning When they said no one is good enough for you Play with your emotions Dismiss the notion Do what you have to do Cause people don't take chances With their hearts Since I met you I am past the hardest part So remember one thing I will never let you down I'm trying
just recorded Colorful for um, the movie Rockstar with two of the biggest stars in the country, you know, Jennifer Aniston and Mark Wahlberg. Right. And, uh, I mean, it was marketing heaven. Everything was perfect. And then 9-11 happened. And, uh, you know, you go, wow, I mean, what? That's, you know, no fault of your own. This happened, and you can't go out and promote, you know, you can't promote a new record or anything back then. You know, what are you going to tell a... You know, tell people don't give your money to the Red Cross give it to us or RCA and buy a record <laughs> so I refused to promote it and um, and uh, you know next thing you know it's the new single has fallen off the charts and um, we're back to square one you know now listen <laughs> people lost their lives on 9-11 right. I'm not complaining about it um, you know there were many many terrible things that happened to people but I'm just talking from a, from a, a consumer's um perspective nobody wanted to go out and buy a record um and nobody really wanted to see a, a movie about a hair band <laughs> from the 1980s but you know people uh to this day uh people still love that movie and see you know see the movie all the time it's played all the time on vh1 and uh, and it's it stood the test of time too people really like that movie yeah and and you were actually in the movie how did how did you get involved with it wanted songs that were, were very Seattle-esque for the end of the movie and I wrote a few songs and then um, I went in and met with my publisher and I also did some acting so they set me up an audition they wanted they were looking for musicians to be in the movie and I got the part I got the part in the movie as the bass player and I only had a few lines but um, but uh, you know the big the bigger deal was definitely having the song in the movie the song the perfect placement for a movie that's for sure right at the very end Mark uh, lip singing that uh, did most people think that he actually did perform it show is over close the storybook there will be no And all the random hands that I have shook Well, they're reaching for the door I watch the backs as they leave single file You stood stubborn, cheering all the while I know I can be living fortunate I know you will love me the way most won't be in good for goodness I'm 
to this day, people say, well, you cover a Mark Wahlberg song. I mean, that's, you know, <laughs> whatever, though. I mean, you know, that's, that's typically what, you know, what's going to happen when, you know, people don't even realize it's the burn pipe that did that song, you know. They, for whatever reason, you know, RCA didn't want to pick up the soundtrack. I tried to get them to pick up that soundtrack um, and release it, but it was a Warner Brothers movie, and they were RCA, and they wouldn't have anything to do with it. I think Marilyn Manson's uh, record label picked it up and, you know, they ended up selling a million copies of that particular soundtrack. So, um, you know, it's too bad that RCA hadn't uh, hadn't done it. But, you know what, RCA's done pretty well with American Idol. So what do they yeah, care? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And then speaking of, like, you know, lip sync songs, I... I spoke to Michael Paré from Eddie and the Cruisers, you know, a few a few months ago, and everyone thought that he sang on the dark side when it was John Cafferty. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Yeah. Yeah, but he did such no, a happens, yeah exactly. He did such a great job lip singing as well as Mark. So I guess you know people just put two and two together. <laughs> sure, of course. Yeah. So like, you're a band kind of like maybe also like Tonic and maybe you know Third Eye Blind. We're kind of like the last generation of kind of like record sales before, like, the Napster thing started. Yeah, I think so. I think we were in that last graduating class of CD sales uh, before it all hit the fan, so to speak. Um, and either bands embrace that and uh, go with Napster and with, uh, you know, with file sharing and, and streaming, um, or or you don't and you fight it and you can't you can't fight progress i mean the fact is that music is free now with streaming we don't you know we had four million streams of the freshman and i got a check for 200 hours for right. that people don't realize that there's no money in streaming for the artist it's a terrible terrible deal <clears throat> but what are you going to do complain about it and not make music i mean if you're born to be a musician or to be a songwriter you write songs and you put them out there they just become uh part of the public domain essentially um i guess not legally part of the public domain i mean you can't just take a song and put it in a movie without getting permission and getting paid for it but but you have to look at your music as essentially being free these are advertisements for you and for your band that's every song is that that's why each song has to be fantastic and that's why we, I think we turned it up a notch as far as the songwriting went. We raised the bar. We said, These, this is going to be really difficult for uh, anybody to get songs put on a record now for, for our albums with the verb pipe because we believe that each individual song needs to stand up to the next. You can't put any filler out there. You can't put any crappy music out there, um, at least from what you know, our standards are as a band. And, and so the last two records, we've worked really hard to raise that bar and maintain that bar and continue on where underneath in 2001 led off, which was about the songs, about the songwriting. And, uh, and so far, now we've had this great resurgence in my band, and we've, we've run it like a business. And since we took, a, took the control back from RCA, we... You know, we've done better than we, we have in years. We've sold out shows across the country, and uh, it's it's been an amazing uh, transformation. But, you know, it's a real testament to to making sure that you're not putting out any garbage and that you're not part of the problem musically, that you're continuing to be true to yourself and writing. You know, I work, I work weeks and months on lyrics to get the lyric right, to make... Uh, make the song say exactly what I want to say and, and, and how it works with the melody and 
and and uh, and makes it sound like something I'm proud of. And I have members of my band that do the same thing. Everybody wrote on the last record, and, and the standard was so high, yet every one of them delivered. Um, that's that's what a great band is. So I'm I'm immensely proud of what we did to embrace streaming and embrace when Napster happened and um, and file sharing. Um, I think that we're doing everything right now, um, and I'm knocking on wood because you know the music industry changes all the time. But I can't imagine doing it any other way. I wouldn't want to do it any other way. You know, I tour when we want to tour, and we put out an album when we want to put out an album. You know, so yeah. And Parachute came out last year, and it's it's, it's phenomenal. Um, every song is is absolutely great. Absolutely. Now with movie industry and you know television and even like you know sports, let's see those three kind of like back up the artists and like pay the artists. Whereas the the music industry kind of like shits on the artists. I know we talked a little bit about that just the previous question. Well, here's the difference. I mean, a, you know, a pro athlete is much different than a musician who's uh, considered professional. <clears throat> a pro athlete. There aren't as many pro athletes out there as there are professional musicians. Anybody can be a professional musician by just going out and playing 
somewhere and making a cheap household recording. Um, you know, you make your homemade demos, which now, you know, it's so easy to make terrific albums at home. I mean, we make, we make our albums in our home studio. I mean, granted, we have, uh, I have a superb engineer who's also our bass player. Um, but, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a huge difference between us and, and, uh, I'm just using athletes as an example. Um, when there's so many musicians out there, it all gets watered down. You know, there's so much bad music out there, at least at a particular time when there were tastemakers, you know, you would get some sort of filter that would say, hey, this is worthy of listening to. And there are still record labels that do that, um, that still put out great music and stand behind their artist and whatnot. But for the most part, no, nobody does. Um, and you have to, you have to, you look at yourself as an artist and say, well, we have to be great. We have to continue to be great. We have to keep pounding it over people's heads. Um, and, uh, you know, the reason that I think that money uh, goes to athletes and, and that's, I mean, that's just the, the nature of the society we live in right now. I mean, these are, um, musicians are always secondhand now. I mean, that's, that's never going to change. And, and I don't, that's what I think it should change. I think every kid should be inspired to pick up a guitar and try always. And that's, you know, just like a kid should uh, pick up a basketball and try to be a basketball player if he wants to play basketball. The chances of that kid being a, you know, being a professional basketball player are slim to none, <laughs> you know, slim to worse. Uh, and the chances of them being a musician that can actually put out music and, um, and play a show or two or even a show a week or more than that or get a band and actually make a little money doing it are very, very good nowadays because you have a support system of family and friends that can uh, buoy you up unlike being a professional athlete nobody would nobody would uh, you know nobody would care about an athlete who was mediocre um that you know um you know that found his way into you know uh, some sort of stardom as an athlete you know that just doesn't happen Athletes are stars for, for a reason. <laughs> musicians, look at all the musicians. Name all the musicians that are out there right now that aren't, or that are stars that aren't talented. Right. <laughs> and then name one, name one superstar athlete who's not talented. It's impossible. That's the difference. That's the difference. Yeah, you're right. And, and the TV contracts help too. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. Right. Now, speaking of children, you released, uh, two very entertaining children's albums uh I, I listened to both of them and they're very catchy songs because i've taken both my kids to kids concerts luckily neither one of them was into the wiggles but there were like other kids acts and these your songs would be great for adults and kids alike to listen to well i mean that's the point i think to doing kids music i mean you can't talk down to a kid um, unless you're unless you're talking about like two year olds, you know, right. where they might appreciate the wiggles and they appreciate row 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 your boat for the sake of the melody and that they can do a round and learn how to do that or old McDonald's and that kind of thing. But <clears throat> when you're talking about four year olds to eight year olds, you might have more sophisticated taste. I mean, I'll argue that some children's music is much more interesting than adult music nowadays. I mean, it's true because if you listen to them kids music. Uh, you can take a kid anywhere uh, musically. You can you can have you can have uh, more chord changes than three chord changes. You can you can write a bridge that 
um, you know, that cha and then change keys, which doesn't happen in popular music much today because it's too complicated. Uh, you could put an oboe on a on a kid's record. You'd never put an oboe on a a rock record. It would it would be really pretentious to right. do that. But you can put an oboe on a kid's record, and all of a sudden the kid's listening to a song, and and maybe he plays oboe, and 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 he's made fun of for playing oboe. And all of a sudden, there's a rock record, and there's an oboe solo, you know, and, right. uh, and it inspires him to continue on. I mean, that that was the whole point. And and all of us have a good sense of humor, I think, in the band. And, and so, you know, we write humorous songs and about shenanigans and, and stuff like that uh, in our songs. And then parents understand that, too, you know. <clears throat> and we always put little nods for the parents, too, that only the things that only the parents will get, you know, kind of like the Shrek movies do, you know. Right, exactly. My, my son's so are little things. Yeah, there are little things that we do uh, in the songs just for the adults, you know. So yeah, you kind of have to. My my son's thirteen, so I'll watch like Nickelodeon with him, and a lot of those teen shows always have a little like wink, wink to parents stuff in there as well. Sure, of course. <laughs> yeah. Now, like becoming a family man, did that like inspire you to write those children's albums? <clears throat> no, I don't. I don't know that they did. I mean, my kids inspire me every day, but you know, as far as a particular song, I can't think of any song that like one kid said something where I went, oh, that's a song, you know, I mean, I guess I don't approach songwriting like that, I'm a little more dense than that, I think, I'm not as aware of my surroundings as I probably should be, um, I really think about my own childhood, and then I'm writing songs about my own childhood, you know, uh, it's hard to explain, that, that, hmm. that particular thing is hard to explain, I mean, I, I can't, I really can't think of one song, I mean, we have a song called Serial that, you know, my kids love Serial, and I love Serial right. too, that's why I think adults like the song, because it's a lot of adults say that's their favorite food. I love my Serial, my Serial, morning, noon, and night, I love my
No, I mean, being a family man, of course, is, is, uh, if anything, it's made me more productive when it comes to writing kids' music and writing other music, too, uh, because I'm I'm in a good place in my life, a place where I like to work, you know, and a place where I have to work to be able to put my kids into good schools, you know, as well. Yeah. When did you first uh, start writing songs? Okay, that was, I mean, I was young. I mean, I was... You know, fifth, sixth grade where I was writing crappy little ditties here and there, you know, but nothing, uh, nothing even worth mentioning, you know, that's for sure. <laughs> but I've, I've always wanted to do it, you know, so. Right. Now, recently you uh, actually collaborated with Jeff Daniels, the actor. Uh, how did that come about? Jeff saw a documentary about my health concert series, and uh, he uh, called me and said, I really love that movie, and... Uh, and then we had a conversation about music, and he's a songwriter too. And um, he does it as a hobby, more of a hobby. But um, we said we should write together. And we did. We wrote a couple songs together. And then <clears throat> a couple of years ago, we got together and said, let's just do an album. So we did an album of um, what was going to be Michigan based stories and, and songs, but um, we ended up changing that because we found that um, we were milking the stories of Michigan <laughs> dry. <laughs> Maybe I'm a fool to want 
Yeah, I, I had no idea that you know he was actually a singer-songwriter before uh, I was doing research for his interview. Yeah, he's great. He's terrific, for sure. Yeah, yeah. so you, you mentioned the house uh, concerts, and that whole premise is, is fascinating. How, um, how did you start doing those? Well, it started with the... <clears throat> I got booked into one. I mean, I, I, I put out a actually put out an email after I played one. So the woman that wrote, written me asked me to play her birthday party, and I was like, I don't know about that. And then she offered this great amount of money, and I was like, oh, come play your party? What, what the hell? i got to do the orange. <laughs> and it was awesome. I loved it. I loved playing in a living room, and nobody was really doing house concerts back in 2007, so I thought, well, this is something that I could do, and I could actually make a living doing, and I put out an email and said, book me into your home, and I, I ended up booking 50-some shows, like, overnight. And and it completely changed my life. I mean, they, they were the best thing that happened to me in 2007 when, when it was hard to make a living as a musician, even harder than it is today. And I haven't looked back. I mean, I've done over 700 now, and I'm close to, close to 800 of these things in the last 11 years. So, I mean, it's... I do a lot of repeats, and uh, I love it. I do them. I do them all year round now. Yeah. How how far do you go for them? Canada. Okay. <laughs> in, uh, all over the U.S. and Canada. Right. Okay. That's that's really cool. Are there any crazy stories of just like having someone just you know lie to you and have someone just one person be in be in their house or something like that? Yeah, my, uh, you must have heard that story. My manager didn't like the idea because he felt like you know, somebody would say there's only going to be one person there, and I, or there's, somebody would say there's going to be 50 people there, and then I show up and it's like one woman in a wedding dress or something, but that, uh, that has not happened yet. Right. <laughs> Unfortunately, that way. But most of them, you know, most, most times there's, you know, 30 to uh, 70 to 100 people there, and they all buy, they all buy CDs. It's a lot of fun. Oh, that's not, that sounds like a, a definitely is something I'd be interested in looking into as well. Uh, last question, and I know you kind of have fun with it now because it's, it's on your Twitter account. It's actually also on Wikipedia, just the verb hype and the, and the verb. Um, when did you first hear that there was a band, The Verb, and what was your reaction? Well, it was 1993. I think the band, we had just put our first record out, and then we saw there was a band called The Verb in England, and we thought, well, what would be the chances that they would make it, and we would make it, and then our hit songs were like within weeks of each other. It was crazy how that happened, but <laughs> I maintain a good sense of humor about it, and I'm not sure if they do. I'm sure they got the worst of it. Right. The fact that we, uh, you know, we were to, we wrote a song really that teeny boppers really like, and uh, you know, they're they're a much more sophisticated band. Uh, but you know, it is what it is. I mean, that's you know, because of the name, it's confusing. A lot of people are confused. I, I, it happens every single day that somebody mistakes us for each other, and I'm I'm fine with it. I usually retweet people and make fun of them, but you know, whatever. Right. <laughs> you know, it's all in good fun. Yeah. Has anyone like requested like you know any of their songs at one of the house shows? <laughs> no, not at the house shows. People that do the house shows know all my stuff. Right. Right. So, yeah, that wouldn't happen. But people request that at regular concerts, sure, all the time. Okay. Yeah, too bad you couldn't have like a double bill with with the, the two bands and you just play their oh stuff. God, no, I would never do that. That would be a terrible idea. Yeah, no, I know. I'm, I'm just joking with you. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, at least um, you get your royalties, right? And they have That's to right. pay, and they have to pay what uh, the Stones for Bittersweet Symphony, right? <laughs> You know, I mean, yeah, that's their, uh, what happened with them was unfortunate, that's true, because it's a great song. But, 
course, the, you know, the, that's what you have to do. You have to pay that fiddler, the initial fiddler, so to speak. So, you know, we were fortunate that that didn't happen to us, for sure, you know. But, uh, Brian, thank you for a few minutes today. I really appreciate it, and good luck with uh, sure, no. the tour. Thanks, man. And a special thanks to Brian for joining us today. Be sure to follow him on Twitter at BrianVanderArk1. If you want more information about his house concerts, go to BrianVanderArk.com. You can follow me on Twitter at the first TheFirstNoah19. Be sure to like the page We're Living My Youth on Facebook. Go to iTunes. Check out all the past episodes we've had with all our amazing guests. While you're there, please rate and review the show. I'd appreciate it. If you don't have iTunes, you can find the show on SoundCloud. You can find it on Podbean. Just search Reliving My Youth. Special thanks to everyone who's listening. I can't do without you guys. And be on the lookout for another episode of Reliving My Youth real soon.